This is a Career Channel program from UC San Diego Extension. Visit us at www.uctv.tv careers for videos, employment news, and trend articles to help recent college graduates and grads in career transition bridge to better employment. Wow, this is wonderful to see all of you here tonight. Uh, so many people. Welcome to all the members of the OSHA Lifelong Learning Institute here at UCSD, to friends and guests of the university. I'm Jim Wirtz, and I'm the president of the OSHA Lifelong Learning Institute here at UC San Diego. I'm learning that slowly, uh, which is co-sponsoring tonight's evening event along with the UC San Diego Extension Career Channel. We're delighted to participate in bringing this program to the community tonight. According to my Kindle, I have read 86% of their book. Uh, no more pages. Uh, and uh, it's a very exciting book. Uh, I have really enjoyed it. It's clear, it's down to earth, it's relevant, and does not get bogged down in unnecessary facts. In a very refreshing style of following a couple through the steps of refiring, it really opens up their subject matter. I'm sure we're going to have a very informative and enjoyable evening. Mary Walshock uh, is known to many of you. Mary is Associate Vice Chancellor of Public Programs and Dean of Extension at UC San Diego. Her realm includes the OSHA Institute, and I might say that uh, 41 years ago she participated in the founding of what, what became the OSHA Institute. It was the uh, Institute for Continuing Learning, I think, yes, ICL and uh, also UC San Diego TV, among many other programs. Now, I'm supposed to say it's my pleasure to introduce Mary, but that's the canned thing I'm supposed to say about her. <laughs> okay. And the fact of the matter is that I've gotten to know Mary a little bit over the past couple of years meeting with her, and uh, I wanted to say something because I have learned that she knows just about everyone and she knows something about just about everything and is certainly interested to learn more. But more than that, she cares. And she doesn't want education to be static or dull. She wants it rather to be alive and meaningful. And I've been so impressed talking with Mary as I've recognized uh, these attributes, and, and it helps me to understand why she made sure that uh, uh, OSHA, as it's now called, came into existence, where we can have really dynamic learning. Mary Walshock. So, so there are two reasons we're together tonight. One is to have a lively an interesting conversation with two glorious people, uh, and we'll be, have plenty of time for Q&A. But we're also capturing this for UCSD-TV and for the web. 
And we get hundreds of thousands, in some cases millions, of downloads on programs like this. We're going to be very informal tonight. Um, I had the privilege of reading an early manuscript of this book, providing some feedback, and I think I even got to contribute a quote to the book. And so I'm a big fan, and I had to talk these guys into doing this with us tonight. So I thank you both um, for your uh, enthusiasm and your, your willingness. And what I'd like to do, because I've known the two of you for well over 25 years, closer to 40 years, Morton, and I want to know how the two of you got together. I mean, here's this psychologist working in the medical school at UCSD, and here's this guru management consultant uh, with Blanchard Training and Development. Uh, what got you together, and then what got you to do the book? I think we probably met first through Spencer Johnson, don't you think? Originally, yeah. Who yeah. 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 moved my cheese, yeah. Spencer Johnson. And, uh, so, uh, and so I've known each other for a long time. Okay. And then we were both heading to New York, and we're in first class, and and uh, Mort was sitting behind us, and so I leaned over, and he said, "What are you up to?" I said, "I'm refiring," and his eyes lit up, you know, because uh, Mort, you were doing some research on yeah, that. Yeah, I was uh, looking at the whole area of successful aging and new models of aging, and two leading people are Laura Carsonson from Stanford, and of course Bill Jesty here and was trying to kind of pull things together and trying to figure out a concept because I had just been at a party for a friend of mine in Los Angeles. And I'd come back and I was really kind of discouraged because half of the people seemed to be shuffling. And not, not just shuffling physically. They were shuffling. They had nothing to say. They had nothing to do. And then the other half seemed to be kind of, you know, energized and so on. I said, you know, what's the difference between the two? And it wasn't a matter of one group being physically ill. I mean, yeah. it just had to do with the way they were approaching life. So when Ken talked about the concept of refiring as an antidote to retiring, it just kind of pulled things together. Yeah. And, and, you know, two things are, when you think of retiring, what do you do? You know, you go to bed, right? <laughs> when, you, when you think of refiring, it's waking up. And that's yeah. kind of what the theme that we're trying to get into this, into, into the book. So how did you approach him or did he approach you? Or by the time you got to New York, had you made a deal? Yeah, well, they, they kept trying to get us to sit down. <laughs> oh, so, okay. so we, we just continued. You were talk. refiring we in were the aisle, by right? The time we got off the, by the time we got off the plane, we decided we were going to do this together. We were going to meet together and see how we were going to do it. Yeah. So it's, uh, I have, when people give me an idea, I have two responses, ping or thud. Uh, and ping is, whoa, thud is, and this was a big ping to work with more. Because my mother used to say, why didn't I write a book by myself? I mean, I've written about 60 books, only two by myself, one on golf, and so many people helped me with my golf game. I didn't know who to write it with. And then my spiritual journey, but I just love to learn from people. And then the opportunity to work with Morton, learn from him and what he was doing, that's, that's the way I guess I've refired over the years. Well, so tell me a little bit about your first meeting. I mean, you, you mentioned that you'd been at this party and you noticed this difference. Well, that was kind of the stimulus. The first meeting really was uh, on the plane. Yeah. And then it was just a series of you know, meetings by Skype, meetings in person, and so on, as we began to evolve the idea. For me, it was a major challenge 
because I'd never written a parable before. Uh-huh. Other, other books of mine have been more vignettes and content. So in working with Ken, and, this, and it just seemed to me this was a book to bet to tell a story. And yeah. so uh, as we developed the content, I also had to develop a new way of writing, and that was another challenging, refiring experience. Yeah. How did you do with him? It was just it was just fun, you know. I mean, he's he's so creative and all, and so we started first trying to create the story, you know. Right. Cause, right. Um, um, in 1980, Marge and I went to a party that Adelaide Bree gave. You might oh, remember sure. Adelaide, Barbara Bree's beautiful uh, yeah. gal, and she invited authors in town, and I wrote a textbook. See, I had, I was yeah. on sabbatical <clears throat> from the university, so I qualified. So Spencer was writing all these value tales, and Margie met him first. And she carried him over, and she said, you guys ought to write a children's book for big people. They won't read anything else. <laughs> and uh, so that started The Woman of Manager, and then almost everything I've ever done has been a parable, because I think people don't sort of get into where'd you get those facts, what are this. They get into the story, and they start to see where it kind of applies to them. And I think that's what you'll find in Refire, rather than us lecturing at you, this couple is experiencing uh, this and trying to find out how they can, you know, not look at retiring uh, or, or aging as a, you know, kind of a an ending, a sentence, a sentence, ra- a yeah. sentence. Ra- <laughs> rather than I'm sentenced than an, to than opportunity. Okay. So that. So talk a little bit about the four or five key ideas that were in the book because I was very taken with those and how you began to sum up and articulate the insights they had on their journey into this next stage of well, life. One of the first things we decided, most books when you deal with aging or anything, they do a lot of stuff on finance. And so he said, there's enough written on that. We wanted to talk about how you could get zest and enthusiasm in your life. And so we looked at four areas. The first one was, was the emotional area, particularly relationships. Uh-huh. And how are you doing in your relationships? Are you doing the same thing with the same people in the same way? Have you met any new people? Are you trying different things? You know, what are you doing to open yourself to kind of new experiences? And, and uh, this couple really uh, gets into it uh, in, in terms of that. In fact, they start this wonderful thing uh, called the Last Minute Gang, you know, because I love early this in the book idea. they get a call from a friend. He said, want to go to the movies? And they said, when? He said, about 45 minutes. And he said, 45 minutes? We haven't eaten, you know, and all that. And his wife said, well, why not? You know, let's get a hot dog and some pop- hot dog and popcorn, you know. And, you know, so this is kind of the beginning of that where they start to figure out that if somebody asks you to do something, the last minute, unless you have definite plans, you say yes, because you're going to get opportunities to do things you never would have well, done and, before. And we kind of built up on that. So yeah. the, whole, the whole idea is, is that it gets you out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And one of the things we're trying to encourage is people to not do what they've been doing the way they've been doing it. So, you know, you get a call at the last minute and, you know, the engineer gets a call from the artist who says, come with me and let's go to an art exhibit. And we're not an art exhibit. Wouldn't have chosen that on his own or her own, and then they go. So the, it, it wound up being kind of a metaphor for risk-taking, for new experiences. 
and, and in a sense, uh, as I said to you, Mary, we, we've kind of seen refire as a metaphor for life. And as we've gotten feedback from people, uh, we're finding that 40-year-olds are also interested in refiring. And they're yeah. taking a look at what rut they're in and so on. So it's been very interesting. We've learned a lot along the way because as we've gotten feedback from people, uh, we've gotten unexpected looks of what, what people were seeing that, frankly, we weren't seeing when we began the book. Well, what is youth but discovery, yeah. uncertainty, right. yeah. Yeah. taking chances, yeah. getting outside your comfort zone. Yeah. Yeah. And you have multiple examples sure. in the book that pick up on that. So there's the first, which is relationships. That's right, yes. And doing, doing things in a new way in your relationships. What's, what's the well, we, second you know, big we, idea? We, we kind of got, we went head, heart, body, and soul. <laughs> okay. So, all right, so, go to so, the head. Go to the head. So the whole idea is... Uh, how do you keep growing and how do you keep learning? And while, you know, yes, you can do puzzles and yes, you can do mind games, the real situation in terms of growing is to put yourself in places where you know less than you did before. So while we can talk about, and we love the whole idea of continuing education and extension, we push it a little bit further, which is don't take the course in your area of expertise take a course in which you don't know very much right. because that's going to be more challenging. That's going to make more demands of you and so on. And if you're learning things, if you're solving problems, if you're trying to get on top of things, that's kind of, an, and you, you just feel alive and you just feel energized. And that, so the, the emotional part is not only emotionally in terms of relationships, but it's how you feel and it's how you're approaching life. So the intellectual part is really important. And obviously at a university, right. we don't have to sell that too much. No. But, but, but the idea is to, to keep on doing it. And we think that learning and growing is like oxygen to a deep sea diver. Yeah. If they don't have it, they die. And uh, I think if you're not learning and growing, you might as well lie down and let them throw the dirt on you, you know, because you're, <laughs> you're about ready to go, you know. And so uh, it's, a, it's a really fun thing. I'm working on a book right now with a gal who was the head of social media for Twitter, uh-huh. 32 years old. She came to me and she says, you know, in the past, mentors have been older uh, than you. And she says, that's good, but I think you young people need mentors on technology and all that. And so we're writing a book on cross-generational mentoring. So, I mean, I'm learning, going to learn stuff from her, and she's going to learn from me. And I think that's really a whole interesting thing. I think in companies we ought to uh, connect all your young people up with some of your senior people and have them mentor each other and really be really powerful. So besides taking courses outside your comfort zone, mentoring or being mentored, other ideas that you share well, in the it's, book? Well, it's always moving into new areas. Uh, doing something that you haven't done before, yeah. learning something that you haven't learned before, it's kind of an attitude as much as anything else. Uh, you know, most of us who, who are professionals are, quote, encouraged to take continuing education. Yeah. Yeah. But the most fun, frankly, that I've had is take a continuing education course out of my field. Yeah. So interdisciplinary has always been a great love of mine. I always learn more, and maybe I can give more to people who I, their areas I don't know about. Well, I think the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, which is one of the uh, sponsors of this evening's event, has about 900 people who do that every day. Yeah. It's quite, quite extraordinary to, to watch. And, uh, and the conversations that you get into yeah. are also very different yeah. because at this stage in life, how you see many 
topics is very different than when you were younger. Marge and I have gotten into the TED Talks. Oh, yes. I mean, that's fascinating. If you all haven't done that, I mean, I, w- I was the cleanup guy at a big TED Talk here in San Diego at the end of the day, and I got up and I said, just about when I thought I might have made a difference in the world, the next speaker was up. You know, And, I mean, it was just the most fascinating yes. thing to find out what these people were doing and learn uh, from that. So it's, it's, it's exciting, particularly around here. This is a learning environment. Yes. So talk a little bit about the body okay. and health. Well. <laughs> Since we're all wired for sound, we were saying it's like going into the doctor for exams. We're all covered in microphones. And well, we talk, the third wires. thing we talk about is refiring physically. And yeah. as Laura Carson says, says from Stanford, we are not our DNA. In other words, there are some things that we can change, but there are a number of things we can change. And some of the stuff is kind of self-evident, Right. We know that people do better if they're physically active than if they're not. We know people do better if they're not, if if they're thinner than if they're overweight. We know how to do that. What we try to do is give people a simple path to get there. So from the point of view of physical exercise, no, I don't want to go to the gym. No, I don't want to begin doing pull-ups and sit-ups and push-ups. So what we, we come up with what is called the minimally effective dose. Minimally effective dose for older adults is walking 30 to 45 minutes a day, five to six days a week for the rest of your life. If you can't walk, a good physical therapist will come up with an alternative. So that's the physical activity part. The second part is, we all know, is eating, right? Okay, and what are you going to do about that? I'm not going to spend the rest of my life counting grams of fat and so on. When I did a book called Lean and Mean, we came up with kind of a series of simple things. One, we eat too damn much. So the first thing is eat less. Second thing is eat more quality as you're cutting down on quantity. The third thing is don't do dumb things. Yeah, it's a piece of pie is fine, a whole pie is not. A couple of pieces, right? Two pieces of pizza are fine, a whole piece is not. So if you don't do dumb things and you do reasonable things, what happens is is that it is not that hard to maintain your weight. And it doesn't have to be exotic. When I was doing work with men and weight loss, one guy said, look, Doc, I'll do whatever you want. He said, but no itsy-bitsy portions and no artsy-fartsy food. So I, <laughs> I promised him that. It's making, you know, it, it, it's making reasonable choices, the choices that everybody in this room knows what to do. And but I found out, Mary, too, because yeah. I went on a big physical fitness program three years ago, is besides... Uh, nutrition and weight control and aerobic exercise, one you might want to look at is strength training. How do you build your core? Uh, I had never lifted weights, so I have a Tim Karens who started personally fit in town, lives not far from us, so I work with him three times a week when I'm in town. And he not only deals with strength training, but balance is really important balance, as you get older. Yeah. So I can stand on one foot, you know, for a minute, another foot, and he's got me on one of those bozo balls, you know, and, <laughs> and all those kind of things. Another thing that's really important is flexibility, you know, because my kids always said, don't get behind my father. When he backs up, he can't see, you know. But now I can actually look behind and actually see what's back there. It's very helpful. Uh, and, uh, and, and then the, the, the final area is rest and sleep, you know, because you need, you need that. You're good at that one. Yeah, I can sleep. That's the one I really was a peak performer in. I can sleep anywhere. And uh, so, but it's really interesting to look at those areas and see 
which ones you might want to work on. You don't have to take them all on at once. And so, but the, the, the aerobic and the eating really starts the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. But I thought part of the implication of your book is even if people have physical disabilities over which they have no control, life can be full of joy and yeah, discovery and, and because of these other dimensions you focus everybody's on. going to have something at some point yeah uh, none of us are going to be illness free uh, and we're going to be treated hopefully by the best healthcare professionals we can and then when they're done it's up to us as you know Mira, i had a back issue a couple of years ago i had a laminectomy and so and I was on my back for a while. And, and, and then there was a year of recovery. And the recovery yeah. had nothing to do with what my physician could do or what you. my physical therapist could do. It really had to do with what I could do. And I think for everybody here who's going to get something at some point, the whole idea is it's a beginning, not an end, and how you deal with it. And I'm not minimizing the reality of real illness. What I'm saying it's what you do once you've gotten all the help you can that's going to make a difference in terms of how you approach things from then on. So there's a fourth dimension, yeah. the spiritual. That's a spiritual one, and it's not necessarily religion. It's just uh, dealing with perspective, I think, in life. You know, why did the good Lord plop you down here? You know, I mean, what, what is your mission? What are you trying to accomplish? And, and I love to ask audiences, you know, how many of you would like to make the world a better place for having been here? And everybody puts their hands up, and then I say, what's your plan? And they all laugh. Yeah. But, you know, you can make the world a better place by the moment-to-moment decisions you make as you interact with other human beings. You know, somebody yells at you when you're leaving the house, you can decide I can yell back, or you can go back in and give them a hug. Somebody cuts you off, you can chase them down and give them a, you know, expressive signal. Or you can... Uh, you know, just wish them well and pray for them or something. And it's, a, it's really about uh, getting out of your own way and realizing that maybe there's a bigger picture uh, to life. Don't you think that? Uh... Yeah, and, and what we try to do in spirituality, say wherever you are on the continuum between atheism and a true believer, what you're trying to do is come to grips with your relationship with the universe. And yeah. whatever that is, it's important for you. Ken does a wonderful job of, of helping our characters really describe yeah, that talk journey. Talk a little bit about that, how, how your characters deal with these issues in the book. Well, you know, one of the things that we think is uh, your problem often is, is the human ego. You know, and you can say edging God out or everything good outside, you know. But it's when people think that who they are is their performance plus the opinion of others. And if that's who you think you are, you're in trouble because uh, how many of you know your performance isn't great every day? Anybody ever knows that? <laughs> and people are fickle and all. So every day you're trying to deal with your self-worth. And, uh, uh, and the way you get focused on yourself either is false pride, when you think more of yourself than you should, and you're trying to promote yourself, or fear of self-doubt when you think less of yourself and you're trying to protect yourself, and you're really down there. And the, the, the anecdote kind of for uh, false pride is humility. And a lot of people think that's, that's a weakness. I, I love the definition of humility. People with humility don't think less of themselves. They just think about themselves less. 
And uh, I, don't, I don't think you can make other people feel good about themselves if you don't feel good about yourself. Yeah. And then the way to overcome fear and all is just to realize, you know, God didn't make any junk, you know. We, we were all probably down here for a reason, and, and, and we got a, got a journey and all. And so we just kind of get people to look at where are they putting their value on themselves rather than feeling, feeling good about themselves, and how can I make a difference in the world as I go out? What's my purpose? And the other part also is to uh, really understand that uh, somehow your successes are not totally just because of you. You happen yeah. to be in the right place at the right time yeah. when the right thing happened. And the other thing is I was not responsible for the fact that the stock market fell in 2008. So I am not responsible for all the bad things that happen out there or sometimes to myself. So the notion is kind of a perspective on what it is that's going on. And that's really very helpful. But how does one sustain that kind of perspective? Does one have to make some choices about how you spend your time or yeah, with one whom of the you spend your time? things, Mary, is that, that I think we have two selves. We have an external task-oriented self that's used to doing, getting things done. Then we have a very thoughtful, reflective self. Which of those selves wakes up quicker in the morning? See, It's the external task-oriented. What happens? The alarm goes off, you know. John Ortberg, a friend of mine, says, what an awful term. Why isn't it the opportunity clock? Or it's, it's going to be a great time. Alarm! And boom, you're out of your And you're trying to eat while you're washing. You jump in your car and you got your car full. You're going here, there. You get home 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock at night, fall into bed, don't have any energy to say goodnight to anybody who might be lying next to you. Next day, boom, you're out of there. And you're caught in a rat race. And I love Lily Talman, the great philosopher from Hollywood. She said, the problem with a rat race is even if you win it, you're still a rat. And uh, so one of the things that we found that's really neat is, can you enter your day more slowly? Can you really do? So one of the things I try to do on a daily basis, I, I read my mission statement. I've written my own obituary. Some people think that's a little morbid and all, but it's kind of fascinating because, you know, Alfred Nobel from, yeah. from your country, uh, his brother died at the turn of the last century, and he went to the Stockholm paper to read the obituary of his brother, and they got he and his brother mixed up, and he got to read his own obituary. That's <laughs> interesting. And if you know anything from high school, he was involved in the invention of dynamite. Yeah. So his whole obituary was about destruction and all. He was devastated, so he... Uh, gathered friends and loved ones around and said, what's the opposite of destruction? They said, peace. And so he reorganized his life so he would be remembered for peace. I think Jimmy Carter's written yeah. his obituary because if he went off in the sunset like Bush, you know, he would be considered kind of a mediocre president, best nice guy and all. Now he's going to probably go down as one of the greatest ex-presidents uh, we've ever had, you know. And so I, I even think Clinton's trying to <laughs> rewrite his obituary because if he died tomorrow... What would it be about, you know? Uh, and uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting thing. And then I look at my values. Do you have a set of operating values uh, that, that drive your behavior, you know? And so my values are spiritual peace, uh, integrity, uh, love, and joy. Those are my four main values. And so what I try to do at the end of the day is say, how did I do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, so uh, the... Uh, who is it that said the unexamined life is not worth the living? Was it Plato or Socrates? One of the one of those old boys. Yeah, one of the old guys. <laughs> but what I think is so fascinating about what you're saying is you've got three people up here. We're all in our seventies, and still 
living life to the fullest. Certainly trying. And trying. Yeah. But uh, there is a different kind of balance, even though you're still writing books, I'm still writing books, I'm still at the university. And I think what you're saying is very, very powerful about examining why. Right. Why do I bother? That's What's right. the point? Uh, well, I think uh, one of the things that's happened as we've begun working with one another, we've learned from one another. And I think Ken's concept of getting you know, the alarm in the morning and then yeah. suddenly hitting really, really very useful. So after my uh, espresso... I am then kind of. I got to, got to, got to get the engine running, right. and then after that's gone, the whole idea of easing into the day, which is to just, uh, I don't have the same approach to life as Ken does, but my own way is to kind of be reflective. Where am I? What's going on? Where am I going? Are there any things that I really think are important for me to be able to deal with today, and to deal with? the big rocks, and then let the little stuff take care of itself. For a friend of mine was telling a buddy of his, he said, you got to spend a minimum 10 minutes of quiet when you get up. And he saw him the other day, he said, I did my 10 minutes in seven minutes the other day. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> some people have this high achievement motivation even about quiet time. You know? <laughs> but you started this conversation, uh, Morton, with a party in Los Angeles yeah. where people began to differentiate around those who still have energy and excitement in life and those who seem to be shutting down. I, I experienced that. Do, do you have any words of wisdom of how one balances relationships so that you don't get, if you will, pulled into a more negative frame of mind? You know, advice is kind of... <laughs> is a, advice is an interesting thing because what you're trying to tell people what to do. I think the notion of people stepping back and taking a look at themselves. I use the concept of 70,000 feet. When you go up 70,000 feet and you look down and you take a look at where you are and where you're going, you say, do I want that journey? Uh, whenever I travel, the first thing that happens when, as the plane goes down the runway is I nod off just a little bit. Uh-huh. And then as it rises, it's a wonderful experience to be separated from the me that was there and beginning to deal with the me that is here. So many of the things that I create, many of the ideas, come to me when I'm going someplace else. And it's the process of going that really allows things to happen. And so that's kind of my metaphor for beginning to figure out what's important. Uh, What's next? Uh, you mentioned that you've been getting such a terrific response. You've given talks and done book signings. And you said to me you're always surprised yeah. by the diversity. What, what sorts of windows what, or doors have been opened? One of the things we've opened? talked about, and Mort really is excited about this, is what we could do for companies about what are you going to do for your people who are moving towards, quote, you know, organizational retirement and all. I got a note from Colleen Barrett, who was is President Emeritus of Southwest Airlines. I wrote a book with her. And she said, I gave four copies of your book to people who just retired the last 20 days. And she said, what was really exciting is they all read it and came to me and wanted to tell me what they had gotten out of it and how much it helped them because it gives them a chance to think about that. And also, you know, how can we, uh, you know, 
you know, help people th there and maybe team them up with younger. You have thoughts on well, that? Well, you know, the, 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 the age pyramid has now become a trapezoid. Yeah. Yeah. So we have 10,000 people turning 60 uh, every day. And so for organizations, the concern is kind of the brain drain, people leaving. And the old model of retirement, you know, 65 gold watch, people say nice things out the door, forget it, uh, doesn't work. Well, we think it doesn't work because we think that there's a different model of, of doing it. But we're thinking of, of, of a refiring program for organizations in which when senior executive gets into the mid-60s, they are offered the opportunity to go into a refiring program. It does three kinds of things, well, four kinds of things. One, they begin to reduce their time. So it's no, and they, and they begin to reduce their salary as well, so you're getting used to the financial change. They maintain their benefits, full benefits, until they leave. The other thing is the refiring program begins to help them think about life after the company. So the things that are in the book, we help people to do. And then the other thing is, is they get to train their replacement with no threat. So, uh -huh. so it's not the bright young man or woman coming who's going to take my job. It is, no, 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 I'm going to be out of here in three years. Now what I get to do is help you be able to do this. So everybody wins. The company wins, the employer wins, and the employee wins. And so we're just developing that whole concept, and we're going to have a couple of organizations that will ask us to do it, and we're, we have the elements in place, and we think that that's a, a new model. There is something called phased retirement that's going on already, but that focuses mainly on the legal and financial. We want to focus on the developmental aspect of it. Yeah. So when you do are no longer with the company, you have a real life that you've already developed. So, Ken, you've spent your life working with companies, large and small. Do you think they'd be open to these kinds of ideas? I think so. I think they're sh searching for some answers on, on this, and I think it'd be really uh, interesting, and, and that's kind of teaming up with younger people where you don't lose the wisdom, right? you know, and maybe even uh, when they're, you know, quote, retired, they still could have Absolutely. Uh, a mentoring relationship. You know, Marge and I are mentoring a young couple in their marriage. You know, mm -hmm. we don't meet with them every week, but every couple of weeks or three weeks, you know, how you doing and, and something like that, legitimizing those kinds of things that, that would really get. The other thing that's fascinating is I'm running into a lot of people my age who are helping their kids who are in their 30s and all, who are entrepreneurs, run their companies, you know, because they say, Dad, you know, you've been around the barn, you know, because a lot of young people have great ideas for creating creative products and all, but they have never run anything. Uh, and a lot of times they, they end up having to sell and all that, you know, because they spend so much money building the products. So that's another interesting thing, teaming up with kids. But, but it's interesting what you're raising, because when I think about large corporations and large organizations, they don't have positions for the wise men and women. You know, that there can be a role. There are people who are rainmakers. I think about a university. Yep. People who have uh, a great ability to raise funds or know the Washington scene uh, may not want to be full-time, but there's no way for the institution to connect to their wisdom, their connections, and their value. And so it seems part of what we're talking about is not just planning for the transition into 
or out of the company, but maybe imagining different kinds of roles in companies moving forward that take advantage of uh, this kind of experience sure. and wisdom. Yeah, and I've had the experience recently with a couple of men that I've known for a long period of time who are going to 2.0. Uh-huh. And it's been just fascinating to watch as they make the transition and watch as they build underneath them the people who are going to be taking their role. They're excited. And, and, and one guy said to me, he said, I, I, I couldn't believe, after he was kind of transitioned, I couldn't believe how much time I was spending doing just that. Oh, by the way, the other aspect of refire is it's whether or not you have a reasonable balance. So what we found is when we talk to 40-somethings, what they say is, you know, I, I, as I look at things, I'm doing nothing but work. I'm doing nothing but career. I have, I've chosen by behavior. I don't have time with family. I don't have time with friends. Things are out of balance. So the other part of taking a look is, hey, okay, what do I want to do? What it's do I want to do? Yeah, what do I want to do less of? Yeah, this is like your portfolio. It never works that way. Uh, what do I want to do less of? What do I want to do more of? And then making a plan and then executing it. A thought is a useful thing. Making a plan is a very useful thing. And then figuring out what you want to do. So this conversation we're having is very relevant to people like us and people in the audience. But if you look up across the United States... A lot of workers are being displaced. A lot of working class folks are losing, uh, losing ground. Do you think that there are principles in this book that can translate into the transitions some of those sorts of people have to make? Well, I think that the big question you want to have in life, are you going to be a victim or not? Okay. And, uh, you know, because you can't control the circumstances. But as you said in your book, you know, we can't talk about unemployment without talking about education. And uh, what is it with people who maybe are displaced in their job? They can say, God, I better refire or I'm going to be sitting around trying to collect unemployment the rest of my life. And, you know, because they can go to community colleges. They can do things where they can learn at a fairly reasonable thing to pick up some skill that might make them attractive. I tell you, when somebody comes to us uh, who's older and they're talking about what the courses they're taking, what they're doing, you know, you go, whoa, you know, this is, this is an interesting person, yeah. you know. Same way with younger people. Well, core to the concept of refiring is learning new things, yes. right? And getting beyond your comfort zone. And you're saying that applies across the boards and maybe across life. Uh, what would you most like our audience to go home with tonight, besides an autographed copy of your book? <laughs> I'd like for you to, to think about, and then if you're here with a spouse or a friend and all, think about the four areas, the emotional relationship-wise, the intellect, the physical and spiritual, and say, of those four, for 2015, what would you like to focus on? And then how could that person kind of be a coach, cheerleader, supporter uh, for you. It would be really interesting to, to pick because don't try to take everything on, but what would you like to focus on uh, this particular year of those? And, and if, if uh, you can't uh, think of any of the four that you need to work on, you know, you lie about other things too. Uh, and uh, so because, you know, we all really need to refire in different right. ways, yeah. I think the second part is, um, and particularly for this group of people, we're great thinkers. 
And uh, what we find out is, is that Insight plus two and a half bucks will buy you a cup of coffee. Uh, Insight without the money will not get you anywhere. So the notion is once you've made a decision about where you want to refire and even how you want to refire, uh, make plan in terms of what you're going to do and start. The first yeah. step, as we know, do is the most something. do something. Don't just think about it. Don't just feel about it. Do something. And it's important for you to get somebody that work with you, see, because, you know, we teach a thing called situational leadership, which is you need a different leadership style depending on your development level. If you're an enthusiastic beginner, you need a directing leadership style, you know. If you're a disillusioned learner, you've tried that and you fail, well, you need somebody who can, can coach you, you know, uh, and... If you're capable and cautious, but, you know, just need, might need somebody just to support you. The problem with New Year's resolutions, you know, I won't ask you how many have already broken your New Year's resolution, but after you announce the New Year's resolution, usually, everybody important in your life laughs and said, I'll believe it when I see it, and they go to a delegating leadership style. If you could handle a delegating leadership style, it wouldn't be a New Year's resolution. You'd do it. So that's the wrong leadership style. And so, like, and I ended up writing a book about my fitness called Fit at Last, <laughs> where I analyzed my development level and got the right thing. So, like, with my nutritional, I went to Weight Watchers, and I realized that was too a little too much support and encouragement and not enough direction. I mean, I like them all cheering <laughs> me on, but I went to MetaFast, you know, because you have to meet with them once a week, and they, you're one-on-one -on -one with somebody, looks over what you're doing and all that kind of thing. And so... You have to say, what can I do if I choose one of these things to get the help I need to follow through? Because as we all know, the road to hell is paved by good intentions. And I want to pick up on Ken's comment, which is a colleague of mine wrote a paper. It wasn't a great paper. It was a great title. The title was, It Takes Two to See One. So the whole idea of working with somebody is, you know, it's hard for us to either see our flaws, it's hard for us to admit them, and it's hard for us to do something about them. So the idea of when you're into a change process, do that with somebody else or in an organized way if you possibly can, it really does make a difference. So can I tell you what I came away from the book with? Please. Uh, was the notion of development is lifelong. And you've used that word half a dozen times between the two of you. And there is a sense that our generation grew up with you sort of stop at a certain point. Now I'm a grown-up. Now I'm ready. Now I'm successful. And what I love about the book is it has this notion of a continuous developmental journey and the notion of there's always something new to learn and to discover. And just try. And just one do it, it. One has never refired. One is always refiring. Refiring. Yeah. So nice way to conclude our conversation. And now we'd like to invite you to join the conversation. We have microphones. We have cards. I think you've got one or two for me here. I get to, I get to read through this. Oh, this is interesting. Now, this is a good question. Where are the best places to refire? America, abroad? Do you think there are different places that are better for people who want to live the kind of life you're describing in your book? 
I think there are a couple of ways to answer. One way to answer that, at least for me and maybe for you, is if, you ta- if I'm someplace else, I have to immediately begin to adapt. I have to learn new customs. I have to ne- learn new language. I have to learn new ways of doing things. So one of the advantages, I mean, the, the, one of the advantages of going is that I'm forced to go out of my comfort zone. I can't tell you which place. I think it depends upon what it is you want to learn. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. So maybe we Californians should move to Iowa, huh? <laughs> you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you need to move, but look at traveling as not just a sightseeing thing, but as an opportunity to refire and, and to grow and all. Like Marge and I were in, in India. We had this young guy driving us around. was 22 or 3. And he said his, his uh, family was back uh, arranging his marriage. You know, We went, whoa, that's interesting. What do you think is the difference between an Indian arranged marriage and a U.S. marriage? Because he had driven a lot of people around. He said the assumption in an Indian arranged marriage is that over time you'll fall in love with the person you married. So I think you Americans fall in love before you get married and fall out of love in marriage. And uh, I've done a number of weddings and uh, told that story recently, and I'll grab the couple's hands and I'll say, my hope, my dream, my prayer for you is that years from now, you'll look at, back at this important day to day you got married and realize it was the day you loved uh, each other the least. See, because happiness is marrying the person you love Joy is falling in love with the person you married. And that was a whole kind of learning just uh, by asking questions and and that kind of thing. There's a question here, and your book doesn't zero in on this, but there is the notion also of careers, encore careers. And you start the book by saying you're talking about a way of living. But uh, just because both of you work in this arena... There are many people who feel they may want to do or be some sort of professional or in a career that they didn't pursue earlier. Do you have thoughts on that? Well, first of all, for any of you who run organizations or have employees who are millenniums, that's a whole different world. So the 20-somethings basically are going to hang around for a couple of years and then they're going to be moving on to something else. It's a whole model that, that I'm aware of. The other thing is, career, uh, careers now are no longer careers in which you, you train, you then become competent, and you then do. Uh, careers have to be ever-evolving. And yeah. so anybody who, uh, no matter what you're doing, you're going to have to learn to do at least two or three other things during the time that you were doing something called work for money. And then there's the great fun of being able to do work just because you want to do work. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, uh, that's so true. When I got out of Cornell, I remember a friend, good friend of mine got a job with, uh, with AT&T, and he called home, and his mother cried. She said, you're set for life. I mean, that was the assumption back yeah. in the 60s, 35 years, get a watch and go off in the sunset, you know. Now they're talking about, you know, these young people are not going to have, not only have three or four or five different jobs, but they'll have two or three or four career things because a lot of times careers disappear. Right. You know, jobs you, disappear. You studied something and all of yeah. a sudden it's been animated, you know. Do you think that the attitude towards refiring is related to the way children are taught to look at life? 
In other words, to what extent do we get caught in those early patterns, I think is what you're asking. Well, children are refiring all the time, right? <laughs> I mean, children take delight in anything different. Uh, and so they're always exploring. They're looking for new opportunities. They don't mind if they fall because they know that they're going to get up. And so one of the things about kids, we just, <laughs> we, we just got a new kitten. And what's interesting is to just watch the difference between how that particular little kitten explores the world and how the older cat does. So yeah. I think if we can keep part of the child-like, not yeah. the childish, that's a good way to go. Yes, and I think that notion of discovery and learning and, and taking chances yep. uh, lifelong, not just when you're young, is Talk kind about of critical. relationships. You know, we've had dogs for years, and, you know, dogs really teach you a lot because they could care less about yesterday, you know, I mean, and they could care less about tomorrow. <laughs> They're really focused now. And a lot of times when we're with people, we're either worried about something, you know. That might not happen. That, yeah, or, you know, this kind of thing. And we're not focused on that. We do that with kids and all. You know, we have to teach people to listen and focus and all. And when Marge and I get home tonight, our dog's name is Joy. I mean, she's just going to be so focused on us, you know, and she could care less. She's not going to say, you know, you only thought said you were going to be gone two hours. This is like four and a half. What is that? <laughs> I mean, she... <laughs> well, I, I'm getting a number of questions that relate to early retirement and uh, wanting to stay in the workforce and uh, questioning the issue of retraining or going back to school. And uh, I think there is, I mean, we've had an important sort of philosophical conversation here, but it may be that some people are having to navigate a transition that they don't really want to make. Yeah. And your, your couple are voluntarily exploring new ways of being. Do, do you have any comments on that dilemma, yeah, that One of the problem? characters in the thing, the man is decided to back off from work, but he's looking for ways to volunteer in the community where he can really make a difference. Now, if you need money, you know, then you need to, you know, see if you can find some entrepreneurs or some people like that. But, but uh, you know, he, he didn't want to, you know, go nowhere. Right. He wanted to go to uh, something. And then his wife, who had been basically a housewife, she said, well, you're getting out of work. I want to go into it. Yes, you know, a lot of a great times, you know, story. People talk about the difference between success and significance, you know. And the reality very often is it, it, it might be different for men and women, you know. And men, after they've been successful, want to be significant. And women have been significant for a long time, you know, raising families and doing other things. They like a little success or a little opportunity yeah. to achieve. And so it's really interesting to see to what see. the balance is. Yeah, there's a wonderful uh, New Yorker cartoon in which guy is coming in the front door, and obviously he's carrying all his stuff from work, and he's saying, I'm home, and, and you see the wife going out the back door, and there's a sign that says, uh, you know, dinner in the refrigerator, you'll be back in a week, see you later. And so we have, you know, kind of a disconnect. Right. But I had forgotten, I think you do make that point in the book, it's very powerful, about success yeah. and significance. And uh, that's an important part, I think, of this yeah, developmental journey. Yeah, I think what journey. happens to a lot of people, they think that their self-worth is a function of how much money they make, 
their recognition for their efforts and their power and status. There's nothing wrong with any of those unless you think that's who you are. Now you always got to get more of those. I mean, why do people take millions of dollars of bonuses as top managers when they've laid off all kinds of uh, people? You know, how much money do they need? You know, and all. But that's how they count them. But significance is different. The opposite of accumulation of wealth is generosity of your time, your talent, your treasure. And I like to add touch to it. What's the opposite of of, uh, recognition? It's service. And what's the opposite of uh, power and status? I think it's loving relationships. And one of the things that Margie said that's neat about our age is we have more time to hang out with people we love. You know, uh, and that's really kind of a neat kind of thing uh, to you because that's really kind of special. And it's so interesting is that if you just focus on success, you never get to significance. But if you focus on significance, like Mother Teresa, she could have cared less about money, recognition, and power. She was into generosity and service. And and then everybody was stumbling all over, wanted to give her money, wanted to give her recognition, and all that kind of thing. So it's really interesting to look at, at those two. So the two of you have opened a Pandora's box based on some of these questions. And I fortunately, I think I knew both your spouses before I knew you. So I know a lot about the extraordinary relationships you have and how they've been developmental over time. I, well, you know. I, I married up. It was clear. Yes, right. yes, you both married up. But that's another story. <laughs> but there are a number of questions here about how spouses go about navigating all of this change together uh, because there is much in life as you were saying at, when you're focused on career and success and kids and aging parents where you're living parallel lives and a lot of what you talk about in the book is integrated lives yes can you say a little bit more about some of the specifics I think it'd be specifics? really interesting as you get to this and start thinking about reading firing as a couple is, is to get a counselor or a coach a third party you know, like our company is run by Margie and I and our two kids and Margie's brother. We've had an outside consultant that meets with us once a quarter uh, for a day for 20 years when the kids and Margie's brother, because we didn't want any accidents. Peter Drucker years ago said nothing good happens by accident. Put some structure on it. If you want a good relationship, do date night. You know, the young people have this date night where the rule is when they go out to dinner once every two weeks at a minimum, they can't talk about the kids. They can't talk about their job. they got to talk about their relationship. And if you had 26 meetings with your spouse just about your relationship, you wouldn't drive home someday, and there's the moving van, you know, moving <laughs> your stuff out of the house, you know. But you never told me, you know. And uh, so, it, you know, what kind of structure? But sometimes it's good because a lot of times when you're going to make some change, it kind of threatens something with your wife. You know, you can say, God, I want to lose some weight. I'm going to stop drinking. Well, maybe that four o'clock cocktail was something that was really a wonderful ritual that you had, you know. And uh, so how do you get some help? The other thing is, one of the things is, it's really interesting to be the spouse for a while, which is to say there have been times when Marjorie has had great success with some of the things that she's doing, and I've gone with her, and you know what? I am her husband, <laughs> and that is my only role it. there. So it's, it's interesting, it's humbling, and even at times it's fun. So. But I think what you're saying, Ken, is, is really interesting because 
I think in our culture, there's a notice, there's the notion that if I seek help, it means I'm weak. Yeah. And I've always been impressed by how in your company, in your family, and in your personal relationships, you define it as coaching and mentoring and, and friendship, not as therapy, counseling, that kind of thing. And I, a lot of it is, I think, how you think about help and how it can help you grow. It's part of a developmental process yes. more than a therapeutic process. One of the things that is very special about Ken is his willingness to hear from others and his willingness to, get, to be coach. And in my experience in working with CEOs, one of, one of the telling things is after having been with them and having been with their company, I'll come up and I'll say, Mary, one of the things I thought you might want to know about what's going on with extension is A, B, C, D, E. I get one of two responses. One response is, thanks, that's really terrific. I really appreciate it. And I know we're going to be able to work together. The other response is, oh, why didn't I know that? And so the idea is, is that they feel exposed because they don't know anything. So as you hear from Ken and his bringing in of people and his hearing, that's an attitude of learning is to be able to hear from others and to, in, in, in some ways, to be able to do it, if you will, non-defensively. In our work, one of our favorite quotes is, feedback is the breakfast of champions. You know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, because if, if you want to grow, that, you know, because people will spot things, uh, that uh, you, you might not spot, and that's really kind of helpful rather than getting defensive. You know, if you start learning how to say, tell me more. <laughs> well, I encourage all of you to get the book. It's, uh, it's full of language and ideas that are really enriching, and I thank you so much for taking this hour with us. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. Thank you.